everyone, and welcome to Manufacturing the Future. I'm Jim Anderton. I'll be your host today for an interesting conversation about additive manufacturing. Now, joining me today will be Mike Corliss. He's VP of Technology with Noost Godwin, a Houston-based manufacturing services, prototyping, and production operation. And Zach Murphy, VP of Technology Partnerships with additive equipment maker Velo3D. Mike and Zach, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Well, uh, just to kick off, Mike, tell me about yourself a little bit and about Noost Godwin. I've been manufacturing for over 39 years, primarily in the oil and gas industry. And we uh, manufacture a lot of the complex oil and gas MWD, LWD tools that are used for exploration. And we started additive manufacturing nine years ago, trying to find a new solution for reducing lead time and uh, producing parts quicker and more complicated for our customers. Yeah. And Zach, on the machinery, the equipment side of, of the additive manufacturing equation, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and Velo3D. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I have a background in aerospace and oil and gas. Uh, I've been a customer, a salesperson, and a uh, product development person for additive manufacturing equipment. Um, and I'm happy to be working at Velo3D, an additive manufacturing technology company, making uh, laser powder bed fusion systems for the next generation of uh, metal AM. Uh, Mike, New Scodwin, um, your firm has a, a very unusual sort of portfolio of, of products and services. It's, it's very unusual in my experience to see a firm that is in the energy industry and oil and gas that also talks about things like, like pharmaceutical or, 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 or semiconductor, for example. Those are, those are radically different sort of production technologies. How come? Well, we're a contract manufacturer. And so in the history of oil and gas, we've had all the cyclical years over the you know, from the 80s and so on. And so we always had to find ways of diversification. And so we started out doing stuff in aerospace and um, pharmaceutical semiconductor business. And so we're always venturing out and trying to find those other industries to help offset some of the, you know, cyclical business of oil and gas. Now, uh, yeah, yeah, there's, you know, there's an elephant in the room and there's no way we can not not talk about this thing, but there's something going on right now that's upsetting everybody in manufacturing. And of course, that's COVID-19. Now, how's it impacted your business? It has impacted us drastically as far as our customers, you know, oil and gas. Okay. So everybody's staying at home. Nobody's driving vehicles. Nobody's using oil and gas anymore, hardly. So it's slowed the production. So there's a surplus oil and gas in the industry. And so that in effect hurts our bookings and the production of new tools for uh, research and uh, exploration. And so it's had a major impact on us. We just came out of a pretty big downturn that started in 2014, 2015. And, you know, here we were just gaining momentum. And then all of a sudden the COVID hit and that has impacted us because of our customers throttling back and our customers, customers, the majors are throttling back. And so pushing orders out and things. So uh, it has had a big impact on us uh, as far as the uh, order input. Mike, is New Scodwin primarily in the oil and gas sector downhole products or, or process products? Uh, downhole products. Sure. Primarily. We, we're a high-end contract manufacturer. We deal in a lot of exotic materials, inconels, titaniums, uh, high-end stainlesses and brilliant coppers and things like that. So, And our parent company out of Austria also produces a lot of this uh, special non-magnetic materials that are used for housing these uh instrumentation, electronic components that we manufacture for the downhole tools. And what sort of materials are we talking about here? I know, of course, in aerospace, we're often we're often thinking about uh, hot section, you know, aerospace, you talk about in canals, 
Uh, maybe the Renes for the, for the hot section stuff. And we think about titaniums for weight and strength down there. Uh, downhole, what are you using downhole? Well, downhole, we use those same materials. Rene, we use Inconels, we use titaniums for lightweight for the wireline side of the business for uh, during exploration. When they log in a, a well after they drill it, uh, a lot of the tools are sent down just hanging off of a cable. So those are wireline tools and they're made out of titanium. So the weight is a big consideration. And that's part of what's driving us with the AM side of this is looking at that weight reduction. And then the uh, high temperatures for the high nickel, high corrosion resistant materials. So that's been a real benefit for us being in contract manufacturing, dealing with those materials and then advancing into the aerospace where those same materials are used and we're already accustomed to those materials and looking at turning some of those into additive manufactured products. Uh, Zach, so it sounds like if, if you've got equipment that can do aerospace work, coincidentally, it's going to work well for this advanced downhole stuff down here. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the reason that you use specific alloys is slightly different in the two uh, different verticals. But I think when you're looking at high performance materials, uh, if it's in a high performance system, there's a good case to use it. Now, it's uh, some of the materials we're talking about, uh, there has always been um, uh, some reluctance for some firms to go the additive route out of fear that they're limited in the, in the spectrum of materials that they have to work with that way. Is, is that still a concern? I, I think there is still some concern there, but one of the things that's actually pretty interesting about using additive as opposed to uh, more traditional manufacturing is that oftentimes those material substitutions um, can come at no significant additional cost. So when I was in oil and gas, when I was uh, working for one of the oil field service providers, there were many times when we'd want to have a tool made out of Inconel, but it was just too expensive. And so we would end up making it out of stainless steel. Uh, with additive, that's not really as much of a concern. And you can go ahead and make that tool out of Inconel and have the material that really is more well suited for the particular application uh, without being constrained by the cost as much. Uh, Mike, you know, in the history of, of tool making, it's always been that argument about uh, you want a tough cutting edge, but you want something with strength and ductility backing it up behind to, you know, to, to keep it from being brittle. And whether you're a blacksmith that knew how to draw back a chisel that you're quenching in an oil bath or doing sophisticated stuff like you're doing, is that still a factor when you're designing these things for additive? Not so much. I mean, you know, we choose the materials uh, suited for the application, but like Zach mentioned, you know, there's a lot of times when the customer is requiring a specific material because he's focused on cost and uh, we would recommend a higher strength material and the delta difference between the powder is very little. So they go, oh, I can get that complex part out of Inconel. Oh, let's do it, you know, because all the complexity is printed in the product and we're not doing a lot of post-process machining. So uh, there's been some flexibility in that, and actually the customers uh, prefer it that way because they get the premium material uh, for basically the same cost. Uh, Zach, you're involved on this side with uh, uh, additive for many applications. Those of us that grew up in this attractive world, you know, uh, uh, men like me that started in front of a bridge port. Uh, the, uh, the actual time it takes to cut a shape kind of constricted your shapes to sort of simple geometries, basically. You know, you fly cut a block, you square it up, basically, you know, you, you knock holes into it and you try and stop there if you can. Uh, but with additive, it seems to me that you can have as much complexity as you want. 
So at, is there some point at which you can design too much complexity into a part or a point at which the build time kind of takes over and grabs you by the throat? Yeah, I mean, I think when you compare the two manufacturing techniques with subtractive manufacturing, what you're paying for in the end is the chips, right? The more chips you make, the more expensive a part can be. Whereas with additive, what you're paying for is the material that is in the actual part. Um, and different processes can take different times when you're printing them. So different geometries can be, some can be slower than others. But in the end, you can add a lot more complexity without really increasing the cost. I'm not going to say the complexity is free because I think that's a, a kind of a misconception around additive manufacturing, but it, it definitely comes at a much, much lower cost than if you were to uh, machine in a lot of those features. Uh, Mike, in, uh, uh, for folks of my generation, we think of perhaps perhaps a die or a, or, or a tool, you know, mold cavity or something. We're looking at a block of, of usually steel, of tool steel, and we're, we're basically whittling away the waste to get to the finished shape, which is in, sort of trapped or embedded inside that kind of way a sculptor looks at it like a block of marble and tries to see the statue, you know, inside it. But it's with additive, you kind of think radically different. Does it change the way you approach part design or even thinking about a part? Oh yeah, absolutely. And then you also have to look at what's left. And so if you have that mass still there, like if you whittled away from a block and you still get the features you wanted, but then you start thinking about the, the remaining mass and so we start looking at honeycombing it, hollowing it out, making it lightweight because all that mass adds cost. And so we're trying to make it lighter and uh, make it more cost effective. So we, we look at that and try to see what we can do, because sometimes if I was to just manufacture an AM block, just a four inch by four inch cube block, that's very expensive. But now if you only needed a quarter inch wall all the way around on the inside, well, then it becomes a lot cheaper and more cost effective. Uh, Mike, I noticed that it's uh, advanced additive users, of course, as you say, they're exploiting the technology and making these exotic skeletonized looking parts that look more like they're like the bones of an animal than a, than, than a machine part. But is it possible to draw direct comparisons between a subtractive process and additive process and say, you know, this making this part this way save me X number of dollars? Yes, I mean, that's one of the things that we're doing and the Bellow Sapphire system has given us the ability to achieve is we're taking some existing products that were, you know, big, bulky, dense parts that had some Swiss cheese drilled holes through the product. And now we're able to apply a different additive strategy where we print all those holes into the product, but then we can change those holes from being linear to they can be curved and they can actually occupy less space. And so we look at part reduction in length and weight. So we're uh, able to do that and still do the finished machining as we would normally to the rest of the uh, product. Zach, is that consistent with your experience uh, across other industries as well? Is this primarily, uh, primarily a lightweighting game or a part reduction, part count reduction game? Uh, I think those are two of the major values that you get with additive manufacturing, but I think maybe a more um, global uh, description of the advantage is that you can really design the part for the functionality, for the application in which it's going to live. Um, and kind of similar to what Mike was talking about with the, uh, the um, gun drilled holes in some of these parts, if you were to actually optimize those, those channels for fluid flow, they would be curved because you get a lower pressure drop as you're as you're going around those bends as opposed to like a cross-drilled 90 degree plugged uh, port. And so I think that's really kind of the main benefit and kind of the overarching benefit of additive manufacturing is being able to design the
the part with more of the functionality and the end application in mind. Uh, Mike, I know that the uh, the injection molding community is very excited about this technology because they're looking at conformal cooling channels, you know, where they can get around, uh, uh, you know, what Zach's talking about, cross-drilling and plugging to try and create sort of rough manifolding uh, kind of situations here. Can you do things or think about the uh, internal surfaces in doing the things you do in the way we're talking about? Historically, if you gun drill something or you, you even you bore a hole, you're pretty limited as to what you can do with that internal surface. Yes, correct. So now you can actually, uh, when you have connecting cross section, there's always a sharp edge. And so we're always concerned about uh, hydraulics, something breaking loose. And then we're always concerned about sharp edges for cutting and shaping wires. So with the uh, additive, we can make those transitions much smoother. And then with the process of uh, like the sapphire offers, we can make those holes, the surface finishes much smoother than with other uh, traditional AM processes. I mean, do you have to retrain a design engineer to, to think in additive terms, or can you take someone who basically who's 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 used to a five-axis CNC process and just throw them into this? Uh, the training is a big part of it. Uh, even the five-axis CNC guys are always struggling with, okay, what do I cut? What do I not cut? So you're you're always working hand in hand with them now to uh, make them understand. Leave that as printed, and uh, you don't machine this. So they. In some cases, they see it as a threat a little bit because we printed some of that complex geometry that they were machining before, and now we're printing it. But they're understanding and they're liking it. So now in the shop of 200 employees running CNC machines, now we're getting the feedback, hey, this makes sense to print this instead of machining it. So that feedback is coming from the shop floor now to us and saying, this is AM is a better process for this part. Uh, Zach, uh, do you concur? Are you seeing this technology coming in here and replacing CNC machining or as an adjunct to it? Or it's, it's how is this being accepted or integrated? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's a really important point. It is an additional tool, right? It's complementary to, uh, to the expertise that a company like Knus Godwin has. And so I think if you, if you try to operate additive manufacturing in a vacuum, you end up making a part that's hard to integrate and hard to post-process. But if you have the knowledge of the subtractive secondary processing, as well as the additive manufacturing, that's where you really start to leverage those together to be able to make uh, make the parts much more successfully and, and make them fit the end requirements. And I think it's important also to consider the tools, right? When you look at some of the limitations, like the CAD programs are generally focused on more of a machining perspective. So you have extrusions and extruded cuts and, and revol revolved cuts and holes. Um, and that's, Another uh, another kind of aspect of what you have to learn uh, in designing parts for additive manufacturing. Mike, it's historically, I think of a time when often uh, functional prototypes or prototypes for fit test or even things that the salespeople would, would ask for us to, to show the customer. We would uh, go to a commodity material Maybe we might do a lot of hand machining or whittle something up so we've got something to show people here. Um, with additive, I get the impression that you could almost iterate your way to success. You could try and build something, you know, a dozen different ways just to see what works. Does this change the way like you develop a new, a new part? Oh, absolutely. We're seeing it all the time where uh, a customer would come to us and has a, an ideal and he wants to build three or four different iterations of that product. And, and I look at them and say, I'll print all four of them at one time and you can pick which one. They go, oh, you can do that? It's like, yeah, you tweak each one, we'll print them all at the same time. So we've seen that the 
uh, engineering process from conception to commercialization has decreased drastically. Some of the products that we produce used to take 24 months to go from conception to commercialization. We're seeing that down to eight months or less now because we're able to expedite that engineering uh, prototype learning curve. So it's helping tremendously to do that. And Zach, I'm noticing that there's, um, there's a shift from the notion of a prototype shop, a short run shop, and a volume production shop with additive. Additive operations, they don't seem to see themselves the same way that, that the traditional manufacturing does that way. Is, are, are we gonna see, do you think, industry-wide a breakdown of that notion of, I want prototypes, I go to shop A. I want limited production, I go to shop B. If I wanna make a half a million of these things, I've gotta to go to somebody else. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it makes it so that the, the contract manufacturing can be much more responsive to the specific demands of a customer, right? So whether it is uh, uh, small, you know, short run prototypes, low rate initial production, or then scaling up for production, one of the nice things about additive is that it actually fits really well with all of those different uh, levels of uh, kind of product development. And so I think that you, you will see um, some of the shops that may be more focused on production starting to do a little bit more in, in the prototyping sense or in the very short run sense. Um, and then you can also scale the other direction as well uh, and start getting taking the things that you were working on in prototyping and, and just start producing them as, as a serial production run. Mike, with additive, is this a straight scaling factor? In, in traditional manufacturing, as, as I recall it, uh, it's, it's a, you approach making 10 of something different than the way that you approach making 10,000 of something. So in, in additive, I get a sense that you design the part basically, and if you want more parts, more machines. More machines, more lasers. You know, I talk about it all the time is that it's the number of lasers. You know, uh, we started out nine years ago with one laser and today we have 21 lasers. Now, how they're applied and used, is, it's, uh, it's up to you, but some of those are doing production, uh, scaled production, and some of them are still doing prototypes. So, yes, it's all about the number of lasers and number of machines. That's how you're going to scale this. And Mike, uh, how's your uptime been with the additive processes? Is it comparable to, to traditional production machines? Yes. But the thing is, is it happens so fast with the additive. I mean, we sort of like start something and then, you know, next day you walk in, it's done. And you're like, okay, we need more. So it's feeding the beast. Uh, it is a, um, a, we're always looking for more to do because we can uh, actually uh, knock out those products much quicker. So it's created somewhat of chaos in the supply chain internally because all of a sudden we're throwing more and more at the uh, post-processing resources and they're like, wow, that's quick, you know, so here's more and more. So yeah, it's uh, it's definitely changed the way you look at that. Uh, Mike, most additive parts have some form of post-processing, uh, often machining uh, built into the thing. Uh, one of the things you can do with additive, of course, you can make some very exotic, very organic shapes. They're also notoriously difficult to fixture or to hold for those post-processing things. Is that, have you addressed that, that transition from, I've now got this unusual shape coming off the powder bed, now I've got to somehow hold this thing in a sensible way to then, 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 then finish it? Print the reverse image. Create a fixture with the reverse image, print it. So it makes it pretty simple. So lit literally use the same technology you use to make that impossible to fixture part to make the fixture for it. Absolutely, we do it all the time. So you, you, you don't have to worry about how you're going to hold it because now you can print the reverse of that and hold it exactly how you want. Then in the orientation that you want, suited for what machine you want. So it's pretty wide open.
Zach, in the subtractive world I come from, the, 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 the jig and fixture guys were a different breed entirely from the, the park designers. And they, not only do they not speak the same language at this point, man, I, I've, seen, I've seen it come near to, nearly to blows in some, uh, some meetings in this case. Uh, additive lets you basically sort of cross over at that point. Do you think we're gonna see a future breed of tool designer or part designer that does it all, that basically says, here's your part and here's the jig and jigs and fixtures to make it? Yeah, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying before, where you really need to be able to take the complete workflow of one of these parts into account when you're looking at how you set it up in the printer and what you're going to do in terms of the post-processing. So I think having that holistic view of the total part workflow is really and truly critical um, to ending up with a successful part. Uh, Mike, um, the, the skill shortage, labor shortage, it's a fundamental issue in, in American manufacturing today, even really even before reshoring uh, cut fire at this point. Uh, are you facing that? Is additive, is that a way you can attract young talent into the industry, do you think? Yeah, it's more appealing to the young talent, that's for sure. Uh, we, we've had the issues as well. We, we struggled over the years. We've had our own apprentice programs and things and trying to grow our own talent. Uh, with additive, though, there seems to be a lot more the younger generation graduating from college have been introduced to it more and they've seen it more. And so they're really excited about it and they want to learn more and use it. So they're their feet, it's slow right now, but it's feeding into that direction where the younger generation are more interested in additive than the traditional standing behind the bridge board, as you mentioned, and cranking handles. Zach, you see it across multiple industries. Uh, is, is additive a young man's game or can, can you take the 40-something the, the or 50-something designer basically and get them to buy in 100%? Uh, no, I think we've we've definitely seen success in, in getting people who have a lot more experience in manufacturing to buy into it. I think. You know, if you're if you're passionate about making things, then it's another tool. And I think people see the potential and uh, see the results and get excited about it. And I think there are a lot of people who are really, you know, um, looking forward to adopting it in what they do and, and are, are really coming on board. Mike, Zach, I can't believe how fast this time has gone where we're bumping up against the clock. I got one more question. Let me start with you, Mike. Uh, if I could put you in a time machine and you could pop back into that chair 50 years from now and you're to look around your operation, do, would you expect that additive will become the way that all parts are made to the point where we're just not going to see a fly cutter cutting into a block of metal anymore? Well, it's definitely going to increase. I mean, we've seen it over the last nine years of how much it's grown. It was a small uh, percentage of our business. And just over the last nine years, now we see it at, you know, it's almost 15% of our business. Our revenue is generated with additive in the next three years. We expect that to be 25%. So 50 years from now, yes, it's going to be a way of the future in producing products. And it's going to be a major asset in your portfolio of your equipment. It definitely will be. Zach, what do you think? In the future, will additive manufacturing be manufacturing? <laughs> I'm probably a biased person to ask that question. Um, but yeah, no, I, I definitely think that it will, uh, it will start to take over more and more of the ways that, that manufacturing is done. And I think as you drive more accuracy and consistency and, and drive the, the cost per part down, you can start to see it replace things like uh, like uh, castings and, and other means of traditional manufacturing pretty quickly. Yeah, that's a future I think we're all looking forward to. Mike Corliss, News Godwin, thanks for joining me today. Zach Murphy, Bellow3D, thanks also for joining us. A fascinating conversation. We haven't heard the end of this technology, I'm sure. Thank you very much for having us.
Yeah, thanks. And thank you everyone for joining us and see you next time on Manufacturing the Future. Thank you.